Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Atkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Zipiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in this week. Remember, you can always catch us right here every week on the radio, on your favorite podcast app, or now on our YouTube channel. Jason, I know we got a great interview ahead. Who are you speaking with? We have with us Ed Condon. He is co-founder and editor of The Pillar, a great and invaluable Catholic news source. So we'll be talking with him about journalism, journalistic ethics, and some of his insights related to the withdrawal of our troops from Afghanistan and the failed nation-building exercise. Everyone remember, if you ever have an idea for discussions, make sure to send us an email. Send us your ideas, your comments. That email address is show at mncatholic.org. Or you can just leave us a comment on the YouTube channel, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I will be back at the end of the program with this week's action item. I'm now joined on the Bridge Builder by Ed Condon. He is editor and co-founder of The Pillar. Uh, Before co-founding The Pillar, he worked as the DC editor of the Catholic News Agency and was associate editor of the Catholic Herald. He is a man of many talents. He's a practicing canon lawyer, having worked at dioceses across three continents and the Holy See. And formerly, he was involved in uh, professional politics in the United Kingdom. Ed Conan, it's great to be with you. Welcome to the Bridge Builder. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about your time working in British politics. I grew up for most of my childhood and all of my adolescence in the United Kingdom in the sort of suburbs of London. When I finished university over there, I was getting the train into work every day with my first job. But I'd get off the train every morning and I would see the Palace of Westminster, you know, what most Americans refer to as Big Ben. And I'd say, how weird would it be to work in there? How cool would it be? So I tried to find a way. And I found a, an entry-level position in the party machine of one of the parties and worked my way up. And I ended up getting to work more or less right across the sort of right angle of the tower, of the clock tower and everything. It was it was a really wonderful time. I had a great time. I, I enjoyed it. I also got to do some really interesting things on some things that I think really matter. I ended up making a bit of a career in, in educational policy and social mobility policy, as well as international development. In the months before I got married, I ended up getting to spend several months living in Rwanda, um, hmm. working with the government there. And we had a sort of twinning project that would go on with the party I was working for. We'd bring senior politicians, as well as volunteers, experts from the legal system, industry, things like that. And we'd run education projects, microfinance projects, all that sort of stuff with Rwanda as it was preparing to join uh, the Commonwealth. So I got to do all sorts of fun things working in UK politics and I had a great time. As for why I left, it's actually a funny story. One day the Pope came to my office. <laughs> um, Benedict XVI made this historic state visit as a Pope. You know, Popes have come mm-hmm. to the UK before, but it's a pastoral mm-hmm. visit as chief shepherd of the Catholics of the country, but Benedict came as a head of state and was received Mm -hmm. with all of that sort of pomp and circumstance. And I ended up getting two tickets. I brought my wife and I, I got to sit there in the seventh row as Pope Benedict gave this fantastic address on the place of religion in society, of religion in the conscience of humanity, the priorities, first of all, of Catholics participating in the public sphere and the political sphere, but also the limits of that, you know, where, where is it too far to go? What point do you stop being a witness on the inside and become a cooperator, that sort of thing. And knowing as I did sort of where the legislative agenda of the government was going, uh, I thought, I think I need to find a new career. (laughs) I think I need to find a new gig. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that started me looking around for what I could do next. I'd done theology as an undergrad and I thought about going back and doing more theology, but 
I talk a lot about how canon law is actually the supreme sacred science. And part of that is shtick. Part of it is, I think, true. But the bottom line is I'm just not smart enough for, to do doctoral level theology. I, you know, it's mm-hmm. like nailing jello to the wall for me. I just can't hold that level of abstraction Indeed. Uh, with any confidence. So I ended up studying canon law and starting over as a canon lawyer, mm-hmm. practicing that for a few years. And that's what led me into Catholic journalism. Outstanding. So in government of the people, by the people, for the people, people need good information. The role of journalism today, in theory at least, serves an important role in that. How would you describe the importance of journalism to a good and healthy political culture? The health of journalism is very important. I think journalism has, as you say, a hugely vital public information service role to fairly present, to factually explain to give people the the basic building blocks on which public debate can be built. I think journalism at its most pure is about facilitating that public debate, which you have to have in a democracy, in a society which is open and people make their own choices and things. If you're going to have any kind of common ground, there has to be a common starting point of a pattern of facts and things that people understand, you know, truths that we might hold to be self-evident, for example. I think we've taken journalism for granted a lot in the last, I'd say, 40 years. And we tend to think of journalism, especially in the United States, and I I haven't seen this in other countries, and I certainly didn't see it in the UK, although, full disclosure, I was working on the other side of the argument there. I wasn't a journalist. I was a political Mm -hmm. staffer, so I, I had a fairly jaundiced view of journalists. But I think in America particularly, we have a way of thinking of journalism, which is we've elevated to almost a kind of noble vocation. And I think it can be that. And I think it's important that it tries to be that. But I think we've taken that ideal and we've internalized it so much to the point where we think, well, this is what journalism has always been. And of course, that's not true. I mean, this country, in this country, journalism began with politics and it was mudslinging. It was propaganda pamphlets published out of Massachusetts, the back rooms of Massachusetts pubs, that that's how journalism began in the United States. And it was probably more similar to Twitter than it was, you know, the Wall Street Journal back then. And, you know, but then alongside that, you have the sort of high-minded stuff of like the Federalist Papers and, and things like that. But even that was very partisan. The idea that journalism is this sort of neutral medium delivering the facts without slant I think that's something we had to learn the utility of. And we had a kind of golden era and we've slipped away from that. And we're falling back into the more sort of mudslinging partisan conception of all journalism and media. And there's a downside to that for us. And I don't think we've quite counted the cost of it yet. Certainly there are some principles that journalists should follow. And as a Catholic journalist, um, no doubt the world, the messages from the World Day of Communications that Popes continue to put out every year on the Feast of St. Francis de Sales. They do give us some guidance. So what are those cornerstone principles that the church communicates to us about what journalism is in that highest and noblest sense? Well, I think the thing that the church has always said about the idea of journalism, and and I think this applies in and out of the church, the foundational principle of journalism is the truth, that the mission of the church is the truth. The mission of the church is to communicate the truth. All evangelization is rooted in the proclamation of the truth. And I think in in the journalistic space, it's the job of reporters, it's the job of journalists to speak first the truth and to speak first the truth with love. And I think that's another way in which we can slip uh, in journalism, away from this I, this lofty ideal of, of being a facilitator of a noble public conversation. There are lots of ways to announce the truth, 
There are ways to announce the truth with anger and with hatred and with judgment. And there are ways to just announce the truth with love. And that doesn't mean uncritically. It doesn't mean that you don't announce awkward truths or truths that some people perhaps would rather remain unsaid, but you can still do that with love. And I think that at its best, this is the underpinning of all Catholic journalism is to speak the truth with love about and to the church. And I think a lot of people think about the church purely in terms of the hierarchy, but the church is a society. The church is a, is a perfect society, we say in canon law, you know, not flawless, but complete. It has everything. It's intact unto itself. It doesn't need anything external to function as a society. We have our own laws. We have our own values. We have our own mm-hmm. government. We have you know, all of that. And we have to cover, I think, as Catholic journalists, we have to cover, well, the whole of that society of the church. And if we do that, it's, it serves what I think we really have lost in Catholicism, especially in this country in the last several decades, which is a sense of that common society in the church, that the society of the church, particularly the United States, has become, I think, as culturally fractured as sort of wider American society. And that if we begin to reappreciate and recommunicate the fact that we are not Democrat Catholics or Republican Catholics or whatever else, but that we are Catholics, we are a people apart, we are a society all of our own. And when we speak as Catholics, it's not just about what we think about this bishop or that bishop, but it's about how do we think about education? How do we think about health care? How do we think about love of our neighbor? But we do so as Catholics first. I, I think that would change and challenge a lot of our preconceptions about what it is to be a practicing Catholic right now. We're speaking with Ed Conan. He is co-founder and editor of The Pillar. It's an online Catholic news publication that's digging into a lot of important stories, both in the church and in the world. Ed, in a culture that no longer values truth, would you see that the secularization uh, is one of the problems with uh, where journalism is and where it's going today? Is it, It's really about telling one's preferred story and not getting at the truth for the naked pursuit of power? I think secularism plays a part in it because anything that exists in Catholic society to an extent reflects or apes wider society. It's inevitable. You know, one is the tail, one is the dog, at least in terms of size. And of course, the mission of the church is to be the tail that wags the dog, <laughs> reverses that, if you like. Um, I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of truth to the idea that a, a very secularized mentality can lead to that kind of prizing of personal narrative and advancing your side first. If you are approaching it from a a perspective of faith, then you understand that everything is oriented to a higher good. You understand that that is the real context in which you're functioning and working. So I I do think that that can bleed over, but also within the church. I mean, before we had secularism as a a reality in in the sort of wider culture, we had these problems in the church. We had the problem of people pushing narrative. We had, you know, this in a sense how we got the Reformation. The sins of mass media, if you like, started as the sins of defectors from the church. <laughs> that, you know, Martin Luther was in a sense a, a journalist <laughs> advancing a particular mm-hmm. point of view. And I think what we need in the church and in journalism more widely is a is an understanding of journalism can't be both at the same time. I don't necessarily believe that it can't be both, but I think people need to be honest with themselves and each other which one they're being. So for example, at The Pillar, we do news and analysis. We don't do commentary. JD, my business partner, and I have a weekly newsletter that we each write where we kind of let our opinions out and stuff. But Mm -hmm. in terms of what's on the website, we don't do our opinions or anyone else's opinions. And I consider that to be a service to truth. Mm -hmm. There are other outlets, Catholic and non-Catholic secular, that are expressly there for commentary. That's what they're there for. There are places where you can go to find what 
certain people think about certain things and how they would argue it. And I think that's good and healthy too. I think that's part of a conversation of journalism. Where I see a risk is when you have the real blurring of those two things. When you read news reports, news accounts, then you, you aren't quite sure, is this a recitation of the complete factual picture that I can then form my own analysis and opinion of? Or am I being given a selective presentation of facts with someone's opinion baked in on it to try and skew me? And I think that's where things get dangerous. And we see this a lot in wider media and secular media, as well as Catholic media. I mean, to take an example that cuts across both is the way that the Holy Father is covered. Pope Francis can say that abortion is homicide, abortion is the hiring of a hitman, abortion is Nazi eugenics with white gloves until he's blue in the face. And he does. But many of the Catholic and secular outlets that love covering Pope Francis more than anything else, you, you simply can't find those quotes in their presentation of him. You know, you would be left very much with the opinion that Pope Francis doesn't particularly care about abortion. And it, it just ain't so. And I think that's the kind of journalism that is, it, it presents a risk to the reader and it presents a risk to the society, which hopefully good journalism, and again, of both kinds, whether it's the, the factual and analytical or the, or the commentary kind, is playing a role in shaping and helping form a cohesive whole. You note that the church is also its own society with its rules, laws, structures. You're a, civil, you're a canon lawyer. We have our own legal system. We are truly a, a perfect society in the strict sense of that term. But we're not a democracy. We have people who have the particular charism of teaching, governing, and sanctifying. We also have a journalistic class and the secular world that is all too happy to expose the sins of our clergy and our people and talk about the problems in the church. We're just reading about the horrible malfeasance and abuse in France, for example. So in that context, what should Catholic journalism be focusing on, given we have people in the secular world who are all too happy to put sunlight on what's going on in the church? So where does Catholic journalism fit into that well, I don't think the truth is something which you you gain a privileged access to by virtue of living in a democracy. Uh, the the, the mm -hmm. truth is its own virtue, and uh, I, I think that applies within the society of the church as well. Um, it goes back a little bit to what I was saying earlier about you know you can announce the truth a lot of different ways. You can announce the truth with a with an eye towards vandalizing the institution that you're helping mm -hmm. scrutinize, or you can do it with love and the hope of encouraging a sincere conversation and where necessary reform. I came into Catholic journalism sort of sideways around 2016 on a part-time basis. I started writing about Vatican finances because that was something that was kicking off. And I, I happened to know a little bit about it at the time. Um, as I got drawn more and more into, into Catholic journalism, the thing that I saw was the need to present the sorts of things in the life of the institutional church that require sunlight as a disinfectant, require um, the announcement of the truth of a situation because that's how conversion happens. The Lord was very clear, what is done in the dark will be brought into the light. Anyone, mm -hmm. you know, anyone who prefers the darkness has got a problem. Everything um, that's hidden shall be revealed. Exactly. And I think there is a loving and respectful way in which Catholic journalism can do that with the church, because, you know, the church is an institution that is both human and divine. You know, would does authentic Catholic journalism ever attack the divine character of the church, attack the sacraments, attack the dignity of the priesthood? Attack, you know, certainly not. Never. That, you know, the, the self-evident truths to which Catholicism should hold itself are the magisterium of the church. But at the same time, the church is a human institution it's made up of people, and those people are sinners. We all are. And understanding how the, how the church can survive as a divine institution administered by earthly sinners, 
I think is a, is a challenge for every Catholic, but it's also a challenge that is served by thoughtful and honest discussion about what that dichotomy really means in the daily life of the church. But also, I think there are things in the church that have been done very badly for generations, but are now being done in a very different way. And that is the result of sometimes unflinching, sometimes uncomfortable, sometimes very unwelcome journalistic investigation. And the church has, I'd say, a fairly consistent record on not always welcoming reform when the need presents itself. And I think part of the charism of Catholic journalism is you have to accept that if you're touching on things that make life very awkward for some parts of the institutional hierarchy, you're not going to be thanked for it. But at the same time, it's important that you don't revel in that. And that, you know, there are quote unquote uh, Catholic media, although I, I hesitate to fold them in with the wider Catholic media space that, you know, basically traffic and profiteer on rumors, propaganda, smear campaigns, things like that. And the, there's no place for calling that either journalism or Catholic, in my opinion, because it's just profit driven and, you know, it's trying to drag eyes and clicks and things that doesn't help anyone. But on the other hand, if you're willing to really serve the church with the firm intention of doing it out of love for Christ's church to say, look, this is the truth of the situation and it requires an answer. The people of God are not without rights, even though this is not a democracy and never should mm -hmm. be. They have a dignity in their baptism, a very radical equality, according to Vatican II. And that comes with a certain responsibility, both for the lay people to participate in the life of the church in a serious way, and also for the church to recognize and accept and accommodate that. And this is in the code of canon law. Lay people have the right, according to their station and um, their expertise, to make known their opinions to their pastors, to their governors in the church and say, I don't agree with this. And here's why. Now, it doesn't mean you get to send them petitions saying, we demand that you, the bishop, do what we say because we've got 800 signatures. No, no that's not how it works. But there is a space in the society of the church and in the law of the church for thoughtful debate. And, and I think, you know, the more seriously we take that, the more serious the debate we'll get out of it. Indeed, beautifully said. And uh, we did a whole other episode on that whole process of making one's opinions known to the bishop. So you're right. Uh, the Pillar is really a fantastic source of both news, but also some really good commentary. And me reaching out to you to be on the show uh, was occasioned by one of those uh, columns in which you talked about a number of things, whether it's Fulton Sheen's uh, potential canonization, but also some comment on the deeper meaning of the failed nation building experiment in Afghanistan. And uh, you noted that Perhaps that experiment failed because we're operating in abstractions. We can't build a society in another country because we don't have the right foundations and principles with which to construct a healthy society in the U.S. Say a little bit about your reflections on what you saw within the withdrawal and that failed experiment in Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, I think what I noticed, and uh, I don't think Afghanistan's the first place we, we should notice this, but I think it was particularly stark, is that mm -hmm. when we go into countries like Afghanistan or Iraq or places like that with the sort of conscious or unspoken intention of nation building, usually to replace a regime or a way of life like the Taliban, which we deem to be bad and wrong in the Taliban's case, it certainly was, and is again now. We tend to go in there with no clear idea of what it is we want to bring the people except freedom and democracy. That, you know, these, these sort of words, it's freedom and democracy have become sort of linked as, a, as an idiom 
uh, in foreign policy, particularly in invasive foreign policy, they become almost like a catchphrase that has its own sort of hidden subtext to it. You know, it's like it's like saying fair and balanced in journalism. It's become a sort of mm-hmm. trademark. You know, it, this may not be just a you know or praise and worship. It's like you you can you can parse the words, but it won't give you the totality of what this actually means. And freedom and democracy are nice things, but freedom for what? And, and democracy for what? And I think what we have done in the United States is we started off with, there was a common philosophical, not quite theological, but philosophical in a deep sense, a common premise. And we've gotten away from that. And instead, what we are left with is this architecture of our civil society, which is what we vote to elect leaders. And we have the freedom to speak our mind and to make certain choices. But that's not a system of values. Those are organizing principles that facilitate the flourishing of certain values, that facilitate the functioning of a society that has a common value system. But without that consensus, all we've done is our freedom and democracy, and I think we've seen this over the last decade or two, is it just it gives a marketplace for a very, very angry, fractured public debate. Now, if we try and bring that into a country like Afghanistan, they don't understand the freedom and democracy trademark, you know, what that means. You know, we're, you're going to vote to elect your leaders. Why? You know, what, what, what's the higher purpose that is served by that? We've come to view our sort of civil architecture as a, as a higher good in itself. When it's not, it's mechanistic. It's a means to an end. But what is the end? And so when we go into these other countries like Afghanistan, we're only offering means. We have no end to, to point them towards, and we no longer have the sort of grounding in it ourselves that we can, we can bring out and say, well, this is why our society works and why we think you might like it. Like, we don't know what it is that we're, what we're trying to offer. You know, it's, it, it's fruit from a tree that we've cut off at the roots. And, you know, can you blame people for rejecting that? Uh, can you be surprised that it doesn't take root in a place like Afghanistan? And as soon as we pull out the Taliban come rolling back in because they know what they're about. They know what their value system is. It's monstrous in some cases, but there's no confusion about it. And that I think will always trump a sort of hollow, sterile. Well, we have, you know, we have a system of, uh, of ways in which you can elect your government. So, so what, (laughs) you know, that's, that's not an organizing principle for society. That's not a goal or a cause to which you can dedicate your life or still less your country to say, you know, well, we vote. That's what we do. That's the higher cause. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. You know, voting is nice. Don't get me wrong. It's, you know, a, a democracy like ours presents, I think, the best opportunity for the best possible outcome for the best number of people and you know, all those things. I, I think it's good civil architecture in that sense. But if if you ask me to ascribe to it moral value, let alone foundational moral value for a society, it's no, it's not, that's not what it's for. And I don't think it's how anyone would have conceived of it 200 years ago. Yeah. You can't build a society on John Rawls's theory of liberalism. I'm really taken with your analysis, but then I was reading my recent edition of the new criterion yesterday, and there was an article called do chomp in Kabul. Uh, talking about a course that was being put on for Afghans by the U.S. government at great expense, talking about conceptual art, and then showing these Afghans uh, do chumps the toilet, the famous toilet, which he called the fountain, conceptual art. And then later on in the story where it talks about how we spent $787 million on gender programs. So was it the case that the nation-building experiment 
in Afghanistan was about conceptual abstractions like freedom and democracy, or was there a substantive vision of the good being proposed, perhaps a substantive vision of the good, maybe the deconstruction of Western values, so to speak, that was rejected by a more traditional society like Afghanistan? Um, I don't know. I, the thing is, conceptual art and postmodern art and things like gender theory I kind of view as being in the same bucket. They are essentially, in my opinion, the fruit, the sort of toxic byproduct of a free society that you will eventually get if you have freedom and democracy, not freedom and democracy trademark, but actual freedom and actual democracy present enough in a society. It's like alcohol and fermentation. You know, you're going to get that, you know, you're going to get a society that sort of slightly cannibalizes itself at the margins. You're going to get thought that turns in on itself and attacks its own roots that this is necessary. And like alcohol and fermentation, a little bit could be kind of fun and you know make things nice. But yeah. if you let the process get out of control, it can poison the entire ecosystem. And I think that's a lot of what we're getting here. I don't know that I would accept having the fountain and you know sort of conceptual art and gender theory being pushed at great expense in Afghanistan as a, as a coherent or cohesive vision that's being offered because I don't believe either one of them articulate or represent a coherent or cohesive vision. I think both of them are essentially decadent byproducts of a very coherent and cohesive vision. And you can, and this is another reason why I think even concerted and expensive efforts to impose or instill or seed the ground with those ideas never work is you can't plant the seed of criticism of something else and expect that that will turn into its own thing. The idea of gender theory makes no sense unless you have an understanding of how Western civilization has always grown and evolved and spoken about into itself, that it's it's an entirely self-critical and introverted way of thinking. And so you can't just take that as its own positive vision and try and implant it somewhere. It doesn't make any sense. It's like asking someone to understand the notion of cinema by, make, by trying to plant a particularly angry um, film review. It's like you, you don't know anything about how to make movies, you've just read this angry critique of something that you don't know what it is. And I think that's what we're looking at with whether it's the fountain or whether it's gender theory. But what it does show is that the people who are there, the people who are making these decisions, that's all they understand as a positive vision. And I think that speaks to the brokenness of where we are as a, as a society more widely in, in the West and the United States, surely, is that we think that the sort of toxic byproduct self-criticism is a positive ethos. And I, I think that's really sad. Um, Peter Cook told a, told a joke, the English comedian Peter Cook told a joke back in the 60s where he traveled in the United States and he was asked what he thought of it. And he said, I love America. What I really admired about them was their common purpose and their common positive ethos. They really do believe in anti-communism. And, you know, it's so hard to find a positive ethos like that these mm -hmm. days. And I, that's what I think of when I see things like people promoting gender theory or, you know, this sort of very war, very deconstructed view of, uh, of human nature mm -hmm. is, yeah, they really believe in something, but it's not its own thing. What they really believe is they're anti something else. They're anti everything that has come before. And that's no way to run anything. That's no way to build a society. It's no way to build a culture. You can't construct anything from a mentality that only is about poisoning and wrecking that which came before. Maybe the Protestantism of our nation is really deep in the DNA more than we realize. <laughs> I think so. I think even in the I think even in the Catholic Church in the United States, you know, this is the great yep. sort of joke is Italian Catholics are sacramentalized pagans and 
um, American Catholics or sacramentalized Protestants or Puritans. That's what Cardinal George said, even Amer in America, the Catholics are Protestants or Calvinists or something like that. So Ed Conan, what a blessing to have you on the show. Where can people go to learn more about the pillar and subscribe to keep your good uh, resource going? Everything we've got is at pillarcatholic.com. People are welcome to come. Uh, I stress it is free to sign up. We are, you know, we view our journalism as a, as a, as a service. So there's, there's definitely the option to pay and we would encourage anyone who can to please do because that's how we're going to keep this going, but try it for free. We try and take seriously the idea that the mission of Catholic journalism is to speak first the truth with love. Thanks for your work, Ed Condon. PillarCatholic.com is where you can go. Thanks for joining us on The Bridge Builder today. Thank you so much for having me. And we'll be back in a month with our practical tip of the week. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you bridge your gap between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and now we're turning to our communications manager, Kit Sapiniak, for this week's action item. Kit, what do you have? Yeah, so this week to start building that bridge between faith and public life, we want to let our listeners know about a, a service that we're providing to help them connect with their elected officials by becoming a member of the Catholic Advocacy Network. We are notifying people who are members when your state legislators are holding a town hall meeting. So we're kind of doing all that groundwork of gathering that, and then we'll let you know. And we'll even give you some great questions, maybe some topics that you might want to address with them. So you don't have to head into that meeting really unaware or feeling inequipped. So in order to receive notifications on when those town hall meetings are, make sure to sign up for the Catholic Advocacy Network. It's really easy. The web address is mncatholic.org forward slash action center, and then click on join. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks again for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest and a practical tip building the bridge between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kitsapiniac, thanks for tuning into The Bridge Builder. God bless your day.